Section 20 or Chapter 14, Part 1 of The Night Side of Nature or Ghosts and Ghost Seers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit www.librivox.org. Recording by William McKnight. The Night Side of Nature or Ghosts and Ghost Seers by Catherine Crow. Chapter 14 spectral lights and apparitions attached to certain families in commencing another chapter i take the opportunity of repeating what i have said before that in the treating of these phenomena i find it most convenient to assume what i myself believe that they are to be explained by the existence and appearance of what are called ghosts but in so doing i am not presuming to settle the question if anyone will examine into the facts and furnish a better explanation of them, I shall be ready to receive it. In the meantime, assuming this hypothesis, there is one phenomenon frequently attending their appearance which has given rise to a great deal of thoughtless ridicule, but which, in the present state of science, merits very particular attention. Gross, whom Dr. Hibbert quotes with a particular satisfaction, says, I cannot learn that ghosts carry tapers in their hands as they are sometimes depicted, though the room in which they appear, even without fire or candle, is frequently said to be as light as day. Most persons will have heard of this peculiarity attending the appearance of ghosts. In the case of Professor Dorian's apparition, mentioned in a former chapter, Professor Oder saw it when there was no light in the room by a flame which proceeded from itself. When he had the room lighted, he saw it no longer, the light of the lamp rendering invisible the more delicate phosphorescent light of the specter, just as the bright glare of the sun veils the feebler luster of the stars and obscures to our senses many chemical lights, which are very perceptible in darkness. Hence the notion, so available to those who satisfy themselves with scoffing without inquiring, that broad daylight banishes apparitions, and that the belief in them is merely the offspring of physical as well as moral darkness. I met with innumerable cases in which this phosphorescent light is one of the accompaniments, the flame sometimes proceeding visibly from the figure, while in others the room appeared pervaded with light, without it seeming to issue from any particular object. I remember a case of the servants in a country house, in Aberdeenshire, hearing the doorbell ring after their mistress was gone to bed. On coming up to open it, they saw through a window that looked into a hall that it was quite light, and that their master, Mr. F., who was at the time absent from home, was there in his traveling dress. They ran to tell their mistress what they had seen, but when they returned, all was dark, and there was nothing unusual to be discovered. That night, Mr. F. died at sea on his voyage to London. A gentleman, some time ago, awoke in the middle of a dark winter's night and perceived that his room was as light as if it were day. He awoke his wife and mentioned his circumstance, saying he could not help apprehending that some misfortune had occurred to his fishing boats, which had been put to sea. The boats were lost that night. Only last year, there was a very curious circumstance happened in the south of England in which these lights were seen. I give the account literally as I extracted it from the newspaper and also the answer of the editor to my further inquiries. I know nothing more of this story, but it is singularly in keeping with others proceeding from different quarters. A ghost at Bristol. We have this week a ghost story to relate. Yes, 
a ghost story, a real ghost story, and a ghost story without, as yet, any clue to its elucidation. After the dissolution of the calendars, their ancient residence adjoining and almost forming a part of the All Saints Church, Bristol, was converted into a vicarage house, and it is still called by that name, though the incumbents have for many years ceased to reside there. The present occupants are Mr. and Mrs. Jones, the sexton and sextoness of the church, and one or two lodgers. And it is to the former and their servant maid that the strange visitor has made his appearance, causing such terror by his nightly calls that all three have determined on quitting the premises, if indeed they have not already carried their resolution into effect. Mr. and Mrs. Jones' description of the disturbance, as given to the landlord, on whom they called in great consternation, is as distinct as any ghost story could be. The nocturnal visitor is heard walking about the house when the inhabitants are in bed, and Mr. Jones, who is a man of by no means nervous constitution, declares he has several times seen a light flickering on one of the walls. Mrs. Jones is equally certain that she has heard a man with creaking shoes walking in the bedroom above her own when no man was on the premises, or at least ought to be, and was nearly killed with the fright. To the servant-maid, however, was vouched the unenvied horror of seeing this restless night visitor. She declares she has repeatedly had her bedroom door unbolted at night between the hours of twelve and two o'clock, the period when such beings usually make their promenades, by something in human semblance. She cannot particularize his dress, but describes it as something antique, and of a fashion long since gone, and to some extent corresponding to that of the ancient calendars, the former inhabitants of the house. She further says he is a whiskered gentleman, we give her own words, which whiskered gentleman has gone the length of shaking her bed, and she believes would have shaken herself also, but that she invariably puts her head under the clothes when she sees him approach. Mrs. Jones declares she believes in the appearance of the whiskered gentleman, and she had made up her mind the night before she called on her landlord to leap out of the window, and it is not a trifle that will make people leap out of the windows, as soon as he entered the room. The effect of the flickering light on Mr. Jones was quite terrific, causing excessive trembling and the complete doubling up of his whole body into a round ball-like. And that's from the Bristol Times. The Bristol Times office on June 3, 1846. Madame, in reply to your inquiries respecting the ghost story, I have to assure you that the whole affair remains wrapped in the same mystery as when chronicled in the pages of the Bristol Times. I am, madam, yours obediently, the editor. I subsequently wrote to Mrs. Jones, who I found was not a dexterous scribe, but she confirmed the above account, adding, however, that the reverend, the clergyman of the parish, said I had better write to him about it, and that he does not believe in such things. Of course he does not, and it would have been useless to have asked his opinion. There never was, perhaps, a more fearless human being than Madame Gottfried, the empoisonous of Bremen, at least. She felt no remorse. She feared nothing but discovery, and yet, when after years of successful crime, she was at length arrested, she related that soon after the death of her first husband, Miltenberg, whom she had poisoned, as she was standing in the dusk of the evening in her drawing room, she suddenly saw a bright light hovering at no great distance above her floor, which advanced toward her bedroom door and then disappeared. This phenomenon occurred on three successive evenings. On another occasion, she saw a shadowy appearance hovering near her, Ach den ich das ich Miltenberg, sein Eschuning, alas, I thought. That is the ghost of Miltenberg. 
Yet did not this withhold her murderous hand? The lady who met with the curious adventure in Petersburg, mentioned in a former chapter, had no light in her room. Yet she saw the watch distinctly by the old woman's light, though of what nature it was, she does not know. Of the light seen over Gray's, familiarly called corpse candles, I have spoken elsewhere, as also of the luminous form perceived by Rilling in the garden at Kalmar, as mentioned by Baron von Reichenbach. Most people have heard the story of the radiant boy seen by Lord Castlerock, an apparition which the owner of the castle admitted to have been visible to many others. Dr. Kerner mentions a similar fact, wherein an advocate and his wife were awakened by a noise and a light, and saw a beautiful child enveloped by the sort of glory that is seen surrounding the heads of saints. It disappeared, and they never had a repetition of the phenomena which they afterward heard was believed to recur every seven years in that house, and to be connected with the cruel murder of a child by its mother. To these instances, I will add an account of the ghost seen in Sea Castle, copied from the handwriting of C.M.H., in a book of manuscript extracts, dated C. Castle, December 22, 1824, and furnished to me by a friend of the family. In order to introduce my readers to the haunted room, I will mention that it forms part of the old house, with windows looking into the court, which in early times was deemed a necessary security against an enemy. It adjoins a tower built by the Romans for defense, for C was properly more a border tower than a castle of any consideration. There is a winding staircase in this tower, and the walls are from eight to ten feet thick. When the times became more peaceable, our ancestors enlarged the arrow slit windows and added to that part of the building which looks toward the River Eden, the view of which, which is beautiful banks, we now enjoy. But many additions and alterations have been made since that. To return to the room in question, I must observe that it is by no means remote or solitary, being surrounded on all sides by chambers that are constantly inhabited. It is accessible by a passage cut through a wall eight feet in thickness, and its dimensions are 21 by 18. One side of the wainscoting is covered with tapestry. The remainder is decorated with old family pictures and some ancient pieces of embroidery, probably the handiwork of nuns. Over a press which has doors of Venetian glass is an ancient oaken figure with a battle axe in his hand, which was one of those formerly placed on the walls of the city of Carlisle to represent guards. There used to be also an old-fashioned bed and some dark furniture in this room, but so many were the complaints of those who slept there that I was induced to replace some of these articles of furniture by more modern ones, in the hope of removing a certain air of gloom, which I thought might have given rise to the unaccountable reports of apparitions and extraordinary noises which were constantly reaching us. But I regret to say I did not succeed in banishing the nocturnal visitor, which still continues to disturb our friends. I shall pass over numerous instances and select one as being especially remarkable from the circumstance of the apparition having been seen by a clergyman well known and highly respected in this country who not six weeks ago repeated the circumstances to a company of 20 persons among whom were some who had previously been entire disbelievers in such appearances. The best way of giving you these particulars will be by subjoining an extract from my journal entered at the time the event occurred. September 8, 1803. Among other guests invited to see Castle came the Reverend Henry A. of Redburg and Rector of Greystroke with Mrs. A., his wife, 
who is a Miss S of Ulverstone. According to previous arrangements, they were to have remained with us for some days, but their visit was cut short in a very unexpected manner. On the morning after their arrival, we were all assembled at breakfast when a chase and four dashed up to the door in such haste that it knocked down part of the fence of my flower garden. Our curiosity was, of course, awakened to know who could be arriving at so early an hour when, happening to turn my eyes toward Mr. A, I observed that he appeared extremely agitated. It is our carriage, said he. I am very sorry, but we must absolutely leave you this morning. We naturally felt and expressed considerable surprise, as well as regret, at this unexpected departure, representing that we had invited Colonel and Mrs. S., some friends whom Mr. A. particularly desired to meet, to dine with us on that day. Our expostulations, however, were in vain. The breakfast was no sooner over than they had departed, leaving us in consternation to conjecture what could possibly have occasioned so sudden an alteration in their arrangements. I really felt quite uneasy, lest anything should have given them offense, and we reviewed all of the occurrences of the preceding evening in order to discover if offense was there, whence it had arisen. But our pains were vain, and after talking a great deal about it for some days, other circumstances banished it from our minds. It was not till we some time afterward visited the part of the country in which Mr. A resides that we learned the real cause of his sudden departure from sea. The relation of the fact, as it here follows, is in his own words. Soon after we went to bed, we fell asleep. It might have been between one and two in the morning when I awoke. I observed that the fire was totally extinguished, but although that was the case and we had no light, I saw a glimmer in the center of the room, which suddenly increased to a bright flame. I looked out, apprehending that something had caught fire when, to my amazement, I beheld a beautiful boy clothed in white with bright locks resembling gold standing by my bedside, in which position he remained some minutes, fixing his eyes upon me with a mild and benevolent expression. He then glided gently toward the side of the chimney, where it is obvious there is no possible egress, and entirely disappeared. I found myself again in total darkness, and all remained quiet till the usual hour of rising. I declare this to be a true account of what I saw at Sea Castle upon my word as a clergyman. I am acquainted with some of the family and with several of the friends of Mr. A, who is still alive, though now an old man, and I can most positively assert that his own conviction with regard to the nature of this appearance has remained ever unshaken. The circumstance made a lasting impression upon his mind, and he never willingly speaks of it, but when he does, it is always with the greatest seriousness, and he never shrinks from avowing his belief that what he saw admits of no other interpretation than the one that he put upon it. Now, let's see whether in this department of the phenomena of ghost seeing, namely the lights that frequently accompany the apparitions, there is anything so worthy of ridicule as gross and other commentators seem to think. Of God, the uncreated, we know nothing, but the created spirit and man, we cannot conceive of independent of some organism or organ, however different that organ may be to those which form our means of apprehension and communication at present. This organ we may suppose to be that pervading either which is now the germ of what St. Paul calls the spiritual body, the astral spirit of the mystics, the nerve spirit of the clear seers, the fundamental body of which the external fleshy body is but the copy and husk, an organ comprehending all those distinct ones which we now possess in the one universal, 
or some of the German psychologists call it, the central sense of which we occasionally obtain some glimpses into somnambulism and in other peculiar states of nervous derangement, especially when the ordinary senses of sight, hearing, feeling, etc. are in abeyance, an effect which Dr. Ensmoser considers to be produced by a charge of polarity, the external periphery of the nerves taking on a negative state, and which Dr. Passavant describes as the retreating of the ether from the external to the internal, so that the nerves no longer receive impressions or convey information to the brain, a condition which may be produced by various causes as excess of excitement, great elevation of the spirit, as we see in ecstatics and martyrs, over-irritation producing consequent exhaustion, and also artificially by certain manipulations, narcotics, and other influences, all somnambules of the highest order. And when I make use of this expression, I repeat that I do not allude to the subject's mesmeric experiments, but to those extraordinary cases of disease, the particulars of which have been recorded by various continental physicians of eminence. All persons in that condition describe themselves as hearing and seeing, not by their ordinary organs, but by some means the idea of which they cannot convey further than they are pervaded by light, and that this is not the ordinary physical light is evidence inasmuch as they generally see best in dark, a remarkable instance of which I myself witnessed. I never had the slightest idea of this internal light till, in the way of experiment, I inhaled the sulfuric ether, but I am now very well able to conceive it, for, after first feeling an agreeable warmth pervading my limbs, my next sensation was to find myself. I cannot say in this heavenly light, for the light was in me. I was pervaded by it. It was not perceived by my eyes, which were closed, but perceived internally. I cannot tell how, of what nature this heavenly light was, and I cannot forbear calling it heavenly, for it was like nothing on earth. I know not, nor how far it may be related to those luminous emanations occasionally seen around ecstatics, saints, martyrs, and dying persons or to the flames seen by somnambules issuing from various objects, or to those observed by von Reichenbach's patients, proceeding from the ends of the fingers. But at all events, since the process which manifests life is of the nature of combustion, we have no reason to be amazed at the presence of luminous emanations. And as we are the subjects of various electrical phenomena, nobody is surprised when, on combing their hair or pulling off their silk stockings, they hear a crackling noise or even see sparks. Light, in short, is a phenomenon which seems connected with all forms of life, and I need not here refer to that emitted by glowworms, fireflies, and those marine animals which illuminate the sea. The eyes also of many animals shine with a light which is not merely a reflected one, as been ascertained by Renger, a German naturalist, who found himself able to distinguish objects in the most profound darkness by the flaming eyes of a South American monkey. The seeing of a clear seer, says Dr. Passavant, may be called a solar seeing, for he lights and interpenetrates his object with his own organic light his nervous ether, which becomes the organ of the spirit. And under certain circumstances, this organic light becomes visible, as in those above alluded to. Persons recovering from deep swoons and trances frequently describe themselves as having been in this region of light, this light of the spirit, if I may so call it, this palace of light in which it dwells, which will hereafter be its proper light. 
for the physical or solar light which serves us while in the flesh will no longer be needed when out of it, nor probably be perceived by the spirit, which will then, I repeat, be a light to itself. And as this organic light, this germ of our future spiritual body, occasionally becomes partially visible now, there cannot, I think, be any great difficulty in conceiving that it may, under given circumstances, be so hereafter. The use of the word light in the scriptures must not be received in a purely symbolic sense. We shall dwell in light, or we shall dwell in darkness, in proportion as we have shaken off the bonds that chain us to the earth, according, in short, to our moral state. We shall be pure and bright, or impure and dark. Monsignor Arago mentions in his treatise on lightning and the electrical fluid that all men are not equally susceptible of it, and that there are different degrees of receptivity, verging from total insensibility to the extreme opposite. And he also remarks that animals are more susceptible to it than men. He says the fluid will pass through a chain of persons, of whom perhaps one, though forming only the second link, will be wholly insensible of the shock. Such persons would be rarely struck by lightning, while another would be in great danger from a flash, as if he were made of metal. Thus it is not only the situation of a man during a storm, but also his physical constitution that regulates the amount of his peril. The horse and the dog are particularly susceptible. Now, this varying susceptibility is analogous to, if not the very same, that causes the varying susceptibility to such phenomena as I am treating of. And accordingly, we know that in all times, horses and dogs have been reputed to have the faculty of seeing spirits. And when persons who have the second sight see a vision, these animals, if in contact with them, perceive it also, and frequently evince symptoms of great terror. We also here find the explanation of another mystery, namely what the Germans call Aschengtug, and the English skeptics, when alluding to these phenomena, contagion, meaning simply contagious fear. But, as when several persons form a chain, the shock from an electrical machine will pass through the whole of them. So, if one person is in such a state as to become sensible of an apparition or some similar phenomena, he may be able to communicate that power to another. And thus has arisen the conviction among the Highlanders that a seer, by touching a person near him, enables him frequently to participate in his vision. A little girl in humble life, called Mary Delves, of a highly nervous temperament, has been frequently punished for saying that the cat was on fire and that she saw flames issuing from various persons and objects. With regard to the perplexing subject of corpse lights, there will be little difficulty attending it if they always remain stationary over the graves. But it seems very well established that that is not the case. There are numerous stories proceeding from very respectable quarters proving the contrary. And I have heard from a dignitary of the church born in Wales, which I will relate. A female relation of his had occasion to go to Absterwith, which was about 20 miles from her home on horseback. And she started at a very early hour for that purpose with her father's servant. When they had nearly reached the halfway, fearing the man might be wanted at home, she bade him return as she was approaching the spot where the servant of the lady she was going to visit was to meet her in order to escort her the other half. The man had not long left her when she saw a light coming toward her, the nature of which she suspected. It moved, according to her description, steadily on, about three feet from the ground. Somewhat awestruck, she turned her horse out of the bridle road, along which it was coming, 
intended to wait until it had passed, but to her dismay, just as it came opposite to her, it stopped, and there remained perfectly fixed for nearly half an hour, at the end of which period it moved on as before. The servant presently came up, and she proceeded to the house of her friend, where she related what she had seen. A few days afterward, the very servant who came to meet her was taken ill and died. His body was carried along that road, and at the very spot where the light had paused, an accident occurred, which caused a delay of a half an hour. The other story was as follows. A servant in the family of Lady Davis, my informant's aunt, had occasion to start early for market. Being in the kitchen, about three o'clock in the morning, taking his breakfast alone when everybody else was in bed, he was surprised at hearing a sound of heavy feet on the stairs above, and opening the door to see who it could be, he was struck with alarm at perceiving a great light, much brighter than could have been shed by a candle. At the same time, he heard a violent thump, as if some very heavy body had hit the clock, which stood on the landing. Aware of the nature of the light, the man did not await its further descent, but rushed out of the house, whence he presently saw it issue from the front door and proceed on its way to the churchyard. As his mistress, Lady Davis, was at that period in her bed ill, he made no doubt that her death impended, and when he returned from the market at night, his first question was whether she was yet alive, and though he was informed she was better, he declared his conviction that she would die, alleging as his reason what he had seen in the morning, a narration which led everybody else to the same conclusion. The lady, however, recovered, but within a fortnight another member of the family died, and as his coffin was brought down the stairs, the bearers ran it violently against the clock, upon which the man instantly exclaimed, That is the very noise I heard. End of section 20. Recorded by William McKnight, Plano, Texas.